So we had, it was neat seeing the children, and Ava was up here on the front row, and she likes saying every song, every word. It was amazing. And Ava, how old are you? She's six, and like she was singing every praise song to God. Um, I want to, if uh, Amy Riley, your, your uh, son, Nolan, is in the nursery, and I think they would like for you to be able to come see them for a moment uh, to ch- check on him. I think he's, uh, he's, he's struggling a little bit today. <laughs> Sometimes we have those days, and so uh, I also want to uh, go ahead and invite Donna Hatfield, if you wouldn't mind coming down. I asked Donna to give a testimony, and as she's coming down, um, and she's going to give a testimony about motherhood. I want to just recognize that Jessica and Phil are here, and she is a, a first-time mother, um, and so this is a, a neat Mother's Day as it is her first Mother's Day. And then just want to give everyone heads up. Edith is here, and she had surgery, uh, and so she, she's here after surgery. And I thought she was going to take a week off. Um, so make sure you come up here and gently, gently, gently hug her uh, later. Uh, but she's also one of our, our wonderful mothers who are here. And, um, but I want to go ahead and ask Donna Hatfield. Donna is a, she's just one of those, um, those women, those believers that has an amazing smile that you can't help but, but see and be encouraged just by her very presence. And so when she goes to, where, where do you go to down south? Yes. Well, she, well, she, well, you go south for like for months or two months. So it's always like a sad time because uh, I love her here because her smile is so bright. And so I miss it every time. And uh, she also, she's been now a mother for, how, how many years have you been a mom now? Uh, 50. For 50 years, she's been a mom. And she all has, well, all, all her life, specifically 50 years. And she has um, just an amazing testimony of what it is to be a mom. And her journey has been maybe slightly different than others. And so I asked her to, to share a little bit on, on what God has showed her as her journey as a mom. And she was so kind enough to, uh, after me twisting her arm, uh, to, to willingly come up here and share. Do you want me to hold anything? Or? Oh, no, I'm good. Okay. This is supposed to be quick, and I don't know how you put 50 years in quick. But anyway, I'll give it a try. Two things that I find very, very difficult in life, and the hardest, I'll tell you in the end, is helping them grow and letting them go. Oh, it's so painful. But the part about helping them grow is really, really difficult. It is hard, ladies, isn't it, ladies? It takes 100% of us, 100% of our time, our energy, everything. And I just had a little different course when I had my kids. I had Cheryl, she's my oldest, and my dearest friend today. I just can't, I'm not going to cry. I just can't tell God what a blessing my oldest daughter is, and she just loves the Lord with all her heart, and I just praise God for that because I did not have anything to do with that. I did not know the Lord until I was 34, and so I did not raise my kids in a godly home. Maybe you didn't know that. Anyway, uh, I love them. All I wanted to be when I grow up was a mommy. I want to be a mommy and have kids, and I love that idea. And so I did love my kids, and I did train my kids, but not spiritually. So when I came to know the Lord, it was like, well, it was. It was darkness to lightness in our home. Totally, totally different. Everything was changed, everything. And God loved him. Oh, I love him with all my heart. My husband switched over three months later I know ladies there's ladies here that are praying for years and years and I don't know why God did that for me he knew I couldn't do it alone so anyway he changed our hearts and it was just wonderful and I thank him for that and my daughter said I should say a little bit about her sister and that's Denise and she's a special little girl that we had four years after we had Cheryl and she said just say a little bit mom so for two years I was a mom 24 7 Constantly, she ate every two hours, all day, all night, all day, all night, all day. I thought that was my life. I thought I was going to have that the rest of my life. But God had her start uh, eating right, and so things straightened out a little bit. And I love her with all my heart, and I know that every one of you mothers love all your heart, your kids with all your heart. We'll give our life for our kids. There's just no doubt about it. And the most important thing I can tell you to do is give them your time. There's just nothing like time. They love their mothers. They love being with them and training them. That's our job. Our job is to training them. And another thing I've learned is that our emotions do not have any brains. So we just have to really depend on God for all our emotions because 
they they'll they're just out of control, and so we have to keep them. I'll just one more thing, okay? I'm supposed to keep this short. <laughs> as long as you want. I, not only did I want to be a mom, I searched for love all my life. I I had people in my life that loved me, but I never could accept love or knew what love was until Jesus came and I started believing in Jesus and he is the love of my life and he gave me faith to read his word and I read it and I love it and I adore him and I thank you for these few minutes moms thanks for being such great moms (laughs) (laughs) great we're hoping she can be more energetic you know, that's one thing about Donna, whenever she talks, you know, she just has no energy, and no, that's one of the reasons I love her, she's full of life, full of energy, and she, uh, it's obvious that she loves God, and we, we thank you so much for her, uh, we thank God so much for her, and the testimony I know that she has, I know she's encouraged so many of you, uh, so today we're going to be in Romans 8, And we're continuing in our series, Reality, and we're looking at the reality of God's Word is to be the shaping, driving force of our life. And just as as Donna was testifying that she came to know Christ, all of a sudden she knew love. She knew love, and and at that moment her her house went from darkness to light. And and that's really how our lives are to be, is to be shaped from God's Word. And when that happens, they go from darkness to light, and... uh, and we glorify God. And so I want to spend some time going through Romans 8. I want to pray before we start. Then we'll be in Romans 8, 31 to 39. And we're going to look at, at God's love. And the title today is Your Love. So I hope as we go through, that uh, you really see the testimony of Scripture is that God loves His children. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to You. And, and we thank You. We thank You for the gift of mothers Thank you for the gift of Donna as she was testifying. Thank you for the gift of Rue and how her husband and them have now been married for 10 years. Thank you for the, just the gifts of so many other people that are here, their marriages, their lives, and it's all a testimony to you and to your grace. And I pray that as we, as we come now and as we look at your word, God, may your spirit go forth. May your spirit draw us close to you. May we, we come so not just a better understanding, but we may we grow in our affections and love for you today. We ask for your spirit to move powerfully. In your name, Jesus, amen. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you all to stand as we read chapter 8, verse 31 to 39. We stand here for the reading of God's word because the word of God is like no other word. And so we do so to honor it. And so starting in verse 31, and we'll read to verse 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. For no, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You all may be seated. So we're going to look. First, I just want us to see the awesome truth that is given to us In Scripture, verse 31 begins with, If God is for us. I just want you to think about those words. If God is for us. And Paul, by saying that, he's not wondering, Is God for us? Is he not? Is he? Uh, I'm not sure. He's not saying that at all. Rather, he's saying, And everything that he's written in Romans 8, And everything he's written from Romans 1 to Romans 8, has been a testimony that God is for his children. 
This is a, a declaration. It's a biblical reality. These four words, God is for us, are to bring comfort and rest to our souls, strength and empower our bones, our muscles, and our bodies. These four words are to ignite our faith, refresh our hearts, and provide an overabundance of assurance. God is for us. I just want you to, like, this is what Paul has been moving towards. These four powerful words. God is for us. And what's amazing is this is the very opposite the way the letter started. If you remember, if you know Romans, back in Romans 1, verse 18, we're told that God's wrath is revealed against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness. We're told humanity, all of humanity, so you, me, and everyone else, is rebellious, idle, worshiping inventors of evil. And it uses a lot more words there. But that's basically who we are. We're rebellious, idol-worshiping inventors of evil. We're told in Romans 3, no one is righteous, no one seeks after God, no one fears God. We're told man is under God's wrath. That's the testimony that Paul gives. That's how he begins the letter. God is judge. We are guilty because we're sinful against him. We've sinned against him. We've offended him. We've lived and different, differently than the way he's called us to. But now, as Paul has laid out the gospel, and as he's gone through, especially Romans 8, and we've seen that Christ came to die on a cross, that we would be saved, we see that no longer is God's wrath against us. Rather, we see that God's wrath has been absorbed. And I, kinda, I just put about nine things here. Um, I think they're going to be up here. We see God's wrath has been absorbed. We see that we've been set free from sin. We've seen that we've been justified by God. We're now at peace with God. We have now been adopted into God's family. We looked at that last week. We've been given the Spirit of God. We looked at that last week. We've been united to Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We've been made alive in Jesus Christ. Before Christ, we're, we're, um, Scripture says that we're dead. We're dead in our sins, but now in Jesus we're alive. And, and number nine, and all of this is because of the free gift of God's grace in Jesus. None of it's because of us. So the reversal from going under God's wrath to now experiencing his grace and his love has not been because of our work, has not been because of what we have done. It's all been because of what God has done through his son, Jesus Christ. So the question is, is do you know that God is for you? Do you know that? Do you know that God is for you? Meaning he loves you. You're deeply loved by God. Now, I want to clarify, as, as we talk about this, this passage is written for believers. It is not true of unbelievers. just want to be clear on that. The whole context of Romans 8 is geared at the life of the believer. If you remember Romans 8, 28, we looked at that last week. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. So we're talking about those who love God, who have experienced God's grace, who have been made new, who have the Spirit of God. So if you're a believer, this passage is a, a declaration of God's love and commitment to you. It's his declaration and commitment to you. Now, if you're an unbeliever, then as we walk through this passage, I want to pray that you would trust in Jesus Christ, that you would be saved, that you'd repent of your sins, that you'd receive Christ as the free gift that he is, and that all of these um, promises and everything that we see here today would then be applied to you. My prayer for you is that if you don't know, that you would come to know, and that if you do know Christ, you would truly know that God is for you. So what does it mean that God is for us? What kind of practical impact is that supposed to have on our lives? What's the reality of that as we live out? And so that's what Paul's going to answer for us, and he does, he does so by asking four questions. And before we look at the four questions, um, I want to preface the four questions. I want to just kind of give a, a framework to work with. Number one, all these questions require us to look outside of ourselves, not inside of ourselves. So as we're looking at, as Paul's going to say, God is for you. Let me show you how much God is for you. He's not going to say, turn to your feelings, turn to your emotions, as Donna was saying, man, our emotions can just run rampant. 
Nowhere in this testimony does Paul say, if you really want to know God is for you, just feel it. Just feel deep down in your heart. And Do you feel that God's for you? Well, then he, he doesn't do that. Nowhere does he say, rather, he turns us towards God, and he says, look at the objective reality of God, his word, and what he's done for us, namely giving his son, Jesus Christ, to the cross, that we would be saved. So secondly, the first one, if we want to know God is for us, we do not look inwardly, we look outwardly. Secondly, all these questions are rhetorical. The obvious answer is no one. Paul is assuming we're going to say no one. Who can separate us? No one, Paul. Who can condemn us? No one, Paul. So just to make sure, the rhetorical, it's rhetorical questions. The answer is no one. And thirdly, um, while the answers he gives um, are in response to the questions, they're very much providing a, a foundation for us to understand how much God is for us. So just remember, the whole time as we're looking at these questions, in your mind, keep, God is for us, this is explaining how we can have this rock-solid assurance that God is for us. Because the assurance that God is giving us in this passage is meant to fortify our faith, to strengthen our faith. And I think as John Piper had said one time, to turn our spines into rods of steel that we would stand firm for God and all that we believe in Him. The reality that God is for us is to greatly affect everything that we do. And so question number one is, who can be against us? And we see that in verse 31. He says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, question number one, who can be against us? He's asking, who can successfully rise up against us, destroy us, overcome us, remove us from God's family? That's the question. Who can remove us from God's family? Answer, no one. That's the rhetorical answer or question. That's the answer given. And verse 31 then provides the biblical reality that's meant to prove no one can remove us from God's family. No one can be against us successfully. And therefore, we know God is for us. So Paul does an argument from the greater to the lesser. And this is a very powerful way to give an argument. It's a very persuasive way. Let's read the verse and then we'll, we'll walk through it. Starting in verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So the argument is from the greater to the lesser. He says, if God did not spare his son but crushed him, which we saw in Isaiah 53 a couple weeks ago. But he crushed his son. So that would be the hard thing to do. To not spare your son. To, to crush your son. If God crushed his son so that we could be saved, then will he not now give us all other things? The easy thing would be now to provide for us all the need, all the, the things that we have in our daily life. To meet our needs by his grace. The hard thing would be not to spare his son. So if, if God was willing to do the very hard thing, not sparing his son, but crushing his son, will he not now do the easy thing and providing grace for us on our everyday needs? So let me give an illustration. If a mom is willing to provide for her child who has special needs for 40 or 50 years, making many great sacrifices that many of us would have no idea about, then will that same mom... Not also when their child has a cut, put a Band-Aid on it? Well, that child, when the, when, when the child needs a new shirt, will the mom not provide a shirt for her? Well, yeah, of course she will. She's sacrificing her entire life to take care of her child. And so any of these little small things that come up, of course she's going to meet those. Without question, without a doubt. So God is saying, in a much larger way, I have crushed my son at the cross so that you would know I will meet every single need you ever have. Now, it may not be always the way we feel we want it answered. It may not be the way we want it to be met, but he says, I will provide grace for you. That's what we see. Who will not graciously give us all things? And you know what the word all things means? It means all things. It's not a trick one. It's not a trick like phrase. It, it means all things. God crushed his son so that we would be saved and know he will continue to forever lavish 
His love and grace upon us. There's nothing too great. There's nothing too, too big that God's grace will not be able to meet in our life. So meet meaning, do you need patience to love your children? God will supply grace. Do you need love to love your spouse? God will help you and supply the grace you need. Do you need strength to, inver, to, to uh, endure a verbally abusive spouse or possibly some type of relationship you're in? God will provide the grace you need. Do you need perseverance and faith to stand strong while you battle cancer? God will provide the grace that you need. Do you need wisdom on a decision? God will provide the grace. All things is all things. And everything we face, God promises, I will meet it. And if you doubt that, he says, look to the cross. Look to the cross. The cross is the testimony. I did the hard thing. I crushed my son. I didn't spare him so that you would know, so that I would know, his children would know, whom he has adopted, that he will now provide his grace for us forever. It answers, God is for us. We are not called to rely upon our own strength. We're not called to look inwardly for our help. That's kind of like going to a, a dusty, dried-up well and looking for water. It's not going to work out well. And you know, and I know, that when we trust in ourselves, we can do it for a while, we feel like, but it, it doesn't work out. Our strength isn't sufficient. Our love isn't sufficient. But God says, come to his well, and it's overflowing with love, with grace, with mercy, with strength, with all the things that we need. And he says, come, Come, and it's overflowing that I would fill you up every single day. That then you may take this love and show it to others. You may take this strength and stand firm in the trials you are in. You may take whatever it is that God is giving you, that you may stand firm and glorify him because God is for his children. So know that God is for his children. When you doubt that, because we do, we look to the cross and we go, God had crushed his son. So I would have absolute assurance he will meet my needs by his grace in Jesus Christ. So number two, the second question. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? The answer, of course, is no one. Now, notice how Paul demonstrates that God is for us. He says, it is God who justifies. He does not say, look inside your heart, do you feel justified? He does not say, how do your emotions feel today? Do you feel like you've been forgiven and that you have no guilt before God? He does not say that. He does not say um, anything about subjectively looking at yourself. Rather, he says, God is the one who justified you. He turns our focus towards God and what he has done. I want to encourage you. The purpose of this series is that we would continually look at the reality of God's word and let that shape and form our lives. Not our emotions, not our, not our circumstances and situations, not our trials, but God through his word. So when we want to know if God is for us, when we want to know if we are justified by God, when we want to know if his grace is directed towards us, we don't answer that by saying, how do I feel today? You don't do that by girls getting together with your girls and having a conversation about how your emotions and feelings are. You go it by coming to the Word of God. Guys, we don't do it by whatever it is that guys do. Because we have a, guys have a really crazy way of like answering all of like life's questions. Like sometimes we just deny it, and we, guys are, are a weird animal. We are. It's cool. I, I like it. I'm glad I'm a guy. But we don't do it by any other means than turning to the objective reality of God's word. So what does it say? Because God says those whom he has justified are justified, period. Those whom God justifies are justified. And if we went back a little bit, we would see ultimately those who are justified are going to be glorified with God in Jesus Christ. 
Everyone who is justified is justified that they would be glorified with God. We come back to the objective reality of God's word. Do not believe the lies of Satan. Satan can scream all day long until he is blue in the face that you are guilty, that you do not deserve to be saved. But none of that matters. Because when we come back to the objective reality of God's word, we say, I know I don't deserve to be saved, but based upon the reality of God's word, by believing in Jesus Christ, I am saved, and therefore I am justified. So when you hear the whisperings from Satan, you're not saved. You're not forgiven. You're not loved. God is not for you. We come back into a, a verse like Romans 10.13, which says, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And we know that all those who are saved are justified. And so we say, but I know I've called on Jesus. And because I've called on the name of Jesus Christ, I am saved. Not because of my worth, not because of what I have done, but because of God's grace. We fight the lies of the enemy with the truth and reality of God's word. Fight with the truth and reality of God's word. I promise you, you will feel the attacks of Satan if you're a believer. And many of you know you have. You have you've experienced those pains, those whisperings. You're not good enough. You're not loved. You're not forgiven. You are guilty. And at times we want to succumb to that. At times we do and we fall deep into depression. And we find ourselves pushing other people away. We find ourselves pushing God's word away. But the truth is, is God says, that's not the reality. The reality is, if you have been called, you are justified. If you've called on the name of Jesus Christ, you are saved and God is for you. There is no one who can remove away your justification. There's no one who can bring a charge against you. A charge that God would say, oh, I didn't know about that. Maybe this person's really not saved. Is none. Rather, God says, I have justified the person, and God is the judge. It's his declaration that matters. Number three, who is to condemn? It's kind of like the first, it's kind of like the previous question: who can bring a charge against us? Answer: no one. Paul's asking, who can condemn the believer, the child of God? Who can put them back under the wrath of God. We start out under God's wrath because we're sinful, but then we're told that by faith in God, we have peace with God and are justified. That's Romans 5.1. Now he's saying, well, can anyone move us back under the wrath? Answer, no one. Now notice how Paul answers this question. And he does so in verse 34. He says, Christ Jesus is the one who died. Meaning he's pointing to the cross. He doesn't point inward, he points outward to a historical fact, and he says, Christ died. But then he says, more than that. Do you know there's more than that? It wouldn't be good news if we just had he died. But there's more than that, and it says he was raised. And when Christ was raised, it, it is the guarantee of all the promises. It is the, um, it, it shows us that God has received Christ as an acceptable offering. He really is the Son of God. His death on the cross really does bring forgiveness to all people who believe in Him. It's more than that. He died and He raised that we would know that Jesus on the cross was our propitious offering. Remember that word? We've used it a few times. Romans 3 uses that word. Propitious means wrath-absorbing. So what Paul is saying back in Romans 3, God put forward his son as a propitious offering, meaning that he would absorb God's wrath. And so if we are to say we can be moved back underneath the condemnation of God, then we're saying Christ did not do a very good job absorbing the wrath at the cross. We say Christ's job was insufficient. We say Christ's death and resurrection was not good enough, was not acceptable enough. 
But that's not the testimony of Scripture. The testimony of Scripture is that Jesus did satisfy the wrath of God at the cross so that all who believe in him will never experience the wrath of God. But Paul doesn't even stop at the death and the resurrection. He then says, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Do you know that right now, like right now, Jesus is at the right hand of God seated. Do you know that? Like right now, that's what he's doing. And we're told right now, as he's at the right hand of God, right now he's interceding for believers, for his brothers and sisters in Christ. Do you know that right now the Son is interceding for you and for me and for believers all over this world? Like right now he's doing that. As a testimony, God is for you. He sent his son to die, to raise, to sit at his right hand, and to intercede for you and for me until he returns in the day of glory. So right now he's interceding, and he's saying, justified, justified, forgiven, not guilty. He's saying, Father, that, that one there, he's my brother, he's your son, he's your child, he's your daughter. He's interceding for us, applying the promises to us, saying, Father, that one's been justified. Father, that one's been declared righteous. Father, he has my righteousness. Interceding for us. That's what he does. You wonder if God is for you? Yes, God is for you because his son is constantly interceding, saying, these are your children. To all the believers over and around the world. His present intercession for us guarantees that our salvation is secure and will never fail. You ever wonder if it's going to fail? The Son testifying at the right hand of God for you and me is the guarantee it's not. So moms, do you ever feel inadequate? Do you ever feel like a failure? Do you ever feel like what you do is, is not good enough? Ever feel thoughts of shame and guilt? Perhaps, you know, I know many women, I've talked to many, who have said that, you know, I've been told I'm a terrible person. I know I'm a terrible person. I know I'm not good enough. Perhaps you were told that you are were unloved and unlovable. Perhaps you were told that by your spouse they wish they had never married you. Perhaps you were told... That, you, that your parents wish you had never been born. And those are the testimonies. Those are testimonies from people in this room and from so many others. And we begin to believe these lies. And we begin to, to heap them upon ourselves. And, and women, it doesn't just apply to you men. We can do this too. And we can take these lies from the enemy. And every time we look at the mirror and we see the lies and we see the faces of these people who have said these things. And we look at ourselves and say, unworthy. And we look at ourselves and say, unloved. And we look at ourselves and say, God doesn't want me. He may have at one time, but he certainly doesn't now. His son might satisfy the wrath for some, but not for me, because I'm unlovable. But the testimony of Scripture is that right now, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, testifying and saying, Child, justified. He is yours. He's my brother. He's, your, he's my sister. That's what Jesus is saying at this moment. Let us not believe the lies of the enemy, the lies that come from this world, but we come back to God's Word and we hold it up and we allow the Word of God to inform our thinking, to shape our minds and direct the way we live. Because we have two options. Will we believe the lies of the world and allow that to shape us, which can easily include our affections and our emotions, because those can do this on a daily, even an hourly basis. Or will we come to the Word of God and will we say, this is true? And will we believe the word of God and allow that to shape us? The biblical reality is that every child of God is loved and there's no condemnation waiting for them. And nothing you experience in this world is condemnation from the Father. No trial you go through, no matter how horrible it seems, it is never a condemning act from your Father. But everything the Father does is one of love for his children. And the cross is the symbol 
that all of God's wrath has been absorbed. So when you doubt, when you wonder, when you question, is God's wrath removed from me? Am I condemned? We look to the cross and we say, no. It's been absorbed at the cross. And by the testimony of God's word, I know it's true. Number four, next question. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Answer, no one. No one and nothing. I I love this this portion has been like a huge encouragement to me. I, I pray that as we go through it, I pray that you're greatly encouraged by verses 35 to 39. I pray throughout all of it. The 35 to 39 has been really good for me this week. I pray, um, I pray that for you. So verses 35 to 39 are going to prove that nothing can separate us, thus God is completely for us. Because nothing can separate us from the love of God, from the love of Jesus, we can know God is completely and absolutely for us. And this passage, I mean just, this passage screams trust in the reality of God's word. Like this passage is, is screaming that, and you'll see as we go through. He starts out, we must, he starts out by giving um, a list of seven things. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sore. And he says, will any of these separate us? Will any of these things in this list can easily include natural disasters, but also intentional persecution? Paul experienced, in fact, all of these things. In fact, it was the sword that ended up severing his head from his body. So Paul is asking, can these trials, can these persecutions, can these calamities, can the sword coming down upon our neck, severing our head, can that separate us from the love of God? That's what he's asking. He's like, can these seven things do it? And the seven things may be a complete seven, meaning they represent all things. That's, that's the question he's giving. And the answer is yes, no one, as was just said. But what he does, he now goes to Psalm 44 which is just kind of like out of the blue. He's like, can these things separate us? And then he says, for it is written, or as it is written, for your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We were regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Where are you going, Paul? Like, why did we just go to Psalm 44? So, when we see an Old Testament quote in the New Testament, we realize that the New Testament writer is applying a biblical truth and showing the full revelation of the Old Testament is now being made clear here in the New Testament. So what was, what was known in the Old Testament is giving greater clarity now as it's being applied in the New Testament to Christ. So, Psalm 44 is, a, is 26 verses long. And in verses 1 through 8, the psalmist is just like crying out to God saying, You're amazing. You've given us victory. Your right hand defeats all of our enemies. We are victorious because of you. Everyone is defeated. This is amazing. That's Psalm verses 1 through 8. We love those days, don't we? We love those days. We love the first eight verses. And then come verses 9 through 22. And the psalmist cries out and is, is, they're in turmoil. They're suffering. They're being defeated by their enemies. They're being taken into exile. Like everything bad is happening. And naturally... As good Christians and theologians, we first say, well, it's probably because of some sin. Most likely, they've been idol worshiping, and Israel has been, uh, you know, doing some type of sin that has brought God's wrath upon them and is punishing them. But that's not the case in this psalm. In this psalm, in verse 17, the psalmist clearly says, we have not forgotten you. We have not broken covenant with you. In verse 20, they say, we've turned to no idol. So the testimony here is we are remaining righteous before God. We, we, are, we are not going into sin. We have not rejected him. But yet, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. The righteous are being slaughtered. And that's exactly the point that Paul is bringing here. He's saying that as believers, we, we also are being killed all the day long. We are like sheep being slaughtered. But let us not think that even when we are righteously acting, that the trials and sufferings that we encounter separate us from the love of God. Because that's the testimony of Psalm 44. These things were happening, but it didn't mean they weren't God's people. It didn't mean that God had left them. Rather, when we come back to, we see in verse 36, as it is written, for your sake. It's for the glory of God that this is happening. 
Let us not think that because our spouses are verbally abusive, that means God has forgotten us. Let us not think that because our children rebel against us, they run away from our homes, they find love in their boyfriends or girlfriends or drugs and alcohol, that that means God has forgotten us. Let us not think that when cancer strikes, that means God has forgotten us and no longer are we loved. Let us not think that when our bodies grow frail and weak and that we succumb to, uh, to whatever illness there is, that God has left us. Let us not think that when we share the gospel, we are ridiculed and beaten and possibly killed, that God has left us or God has forgotten us. Remember Daniel 3? Three guys that we all love saying their names and trying to spell? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? They say, no, Nebuchadnezzar, we're not going to bow down to your idol. He says, fine. He takes them up to the fiery furnace, heats it up seven times hotter, throws them in, and then you remember what they say? Didn't we just throw three guys in there? There's like four in there, and the fourth one looks like the son of God's. What they're saying is, there's somebody else there. In the trial, in the fire, literally, in the fire, God is with them, preserving them. Remember Mark chapter 4. Jesus is in a boat with his disciples. And a really big storm comes. Disciples are freaking out. They think they're going to die. They act like Jesus isn't there because he's sleeping, but is Jesus there? Yes, he is there. He's with them in the situation, though it doesn't appear that he's there. Say, wake up, do you not care? And did, was the fact that Jesus was sleeping to show that he didn't care? No, he was tired. <laughs> he was tired from full day of ministry, and he was doing something to show his greatness, his glory, the fact that he truly is the Son of God. So he stands up to the, to the wind and to the waves, and he, and it, and he rebukes it. Isn't that cool? Don't you wish you, like, you could have saw that that day? Don't you want to do that someday when the rain starts falling here? Stop raining! And like it stops, sun comes out. It'd be awesome. Rebuke the rain, and it happens. Um, but Jesus did that, showing that I, I'm with you. I, I might have been asleep, but I'm very much in control. And at the word, I rebuke the wind and the sea, and they obey my voice. Let us not think that because of situations we are in, they mean that God is not with us. And that's what, that's what Paul is wrestling with here. Sometimes in our Christian life, we're going to feel that God's asleep. Even in Psalm 44, I think it's in verse 23. Rouse up, O God, awake! God, we know you're there, but it appears that you're sleeping. But it doesn't mean that God's not there. It doesn't mean that he's not in control. He's a very much in control, asking us to continue to cling to him, continue to trust in him. Do you ever feel like that? That God's not there? Do you ever feel like just because of things you're going through, like, is he sleeping? Does he care? Is he around? The testimony of Scripture is that, yes, he is there. He does know exactly what you're going through. He's the one actually bringing about these situations. And in verse 36, we see the words, for, for your sake, meaning it's for the glory of God. And verse 28, remember, it's for the good of those who love God. He's doing this for. And remember in verse 17, which we looked at last week, in suffering, God prepares us to be glorified with His Son, Jesus. Your circumstances no matter however difficult they are, do not indicate God's absence from you or his lack of love for you. This is so helpful. I love this passage because so often, like we might affirm, okay, I know nobody can condemn us. I know nobody can bring a charge against us. We might condemn the first like three questions, but then we come back to, but man, these trials, how can this be happening if God is for me? And that's what Romans 8 is getting at. Life as a believer, as a child of God, will at times be very hard, and you're going to think that God is not there, but He is there. He's with you. You're His children. He is still for you. His love is directed at you. Satan has paralyzed many believers, many Christians through the lies that he gives when they're going through trials, saying that you're not loved. Oh, if you were really loved by God, he wouldn't do this. Oh, don't you know, God wants you to have an easier life. This is not his plan. We buy into those. That's not the testimony of Scripture. The testimony is going to be in suffering that we're going to be made to glorify with him. And it's through suffering, it's through these trials that God is going to be made known as glorious because we're going to 
cling to him as our father and say, God, we need you. He has not left us. So as we move on, Paul says um, that no trial, no pain separates us from Christ's love, but that actually we are, we are conquerors. That's what it says in verse 37. He says, no, in all these things, in the persecutions, in the famine, in the nakedness, in the tribulations, in the sword, in the dangers, we are more than conquerors. So these very things that at times look as though they indicate God's not with us, are now what God is saying. These are the means of knowing through Jesus you are more than conquerors. The trials we have are to show, and the word is actually like super victors, that in Christ these things do not separate us from him. But rather, it's because we have Christ, we can overcome them, and we can continue to cling to him in faith. And then it's like an exclamation mark on how much God is for us. We go into verse 38, and he says, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The words, for I am sure, they mean Paul has supreme confidence in what he is saying. I am sure this is true. And he says, nothing can separate us. Do you know that God is 10,000% for you? God is for you. So point of all these verses. God is for you. And nothing can separate us from his love. His love is unbreakable. Like, I hope you know that today, if you're a believer in Christ, you are loved by God. You are loved So let me put this together in like a a condensed sentence. What does it mean that God is for us? It means God is committed to extravagantly loving us, perfectly sustaining us, and completely persevering us by his unbreakable love in Christ. I think those are your blanks. I think those are the only blanks you have today. God is committed to extravagantly loving us, perfectly sustaining us, completely persevering us by his unbreakable love in Christ. I use extravagantly loving us because no one can be against us. We see that in verses 31 and 32. I use perfectly sustaining us because there's no one who can bring a charge against us or condemn us. And I use completely persevering us because there's nothing that separates us. He perseveres us. Now again, I remind you, this passage is directed for believers. It would make no sense for for God to say nothing to an unbeliever Nothing could separate you from his love. It wouldn't make any sense. It's by experiencing the love of God and being brought into his family. That's who it's being applied to, to God's children. So I urge you again, if you're here and you've not repented of Jesus Christ, if you do not know God, I urge you to repent of your sins. Believe in Christ. And all these promises are instantly applied to you. That his love is forever towards you. So I want to close and just give two things. What's the point? What's the point of knowing all this that God is for us? Like, why why is Paul saying this? Number one, because God does love you. And again, that's probably my my biggest thing today, looking at this scripture. God wants us to know, as his children, he loves us. You will encounter many circumstances in life that will say, God doesn't love you. You'll feel God's asleep. God's far from you. God doesn't care. The testimony of his word is that he does care, and that he does love you, and he's using these things as a means of making him glorious and of showing you his love. Number two, um, because God loves us, we are free for radical obedience to him. We don't have to worry about something removing us from God, so we're free to love our enemies. Because they can't hurt us, ultimately. We're free to love our spouses that don't love us back. Because God's going to keep loving us and giving us love to do that. We're free to love our children when they rebel against us. Because God's going to remind us how we rebelled against him and his word. And yet he perfectly loves us. There's no one and nothing that can separate us from our love. Truly, if we can say, if God is for us, then we can say, who do I fear? Who do I fear? No one but God. There's no situation, no trial that I need to fear because there's nothing that can separate me from him. 
even if we sell our possessions, move to a part of the world that's hostile to Christians, if we share the gospel, if God allows it that we even be killed, not even our death separates us from him. See how bold that can make us? You go into your workplaces, and even if you get fired because you shared the gospel, it doesn't separate you from the love of God. God's not going to say, well, I was really more concerned about your job at that moment. He's he's saying, go, you're free. Nothing will separate you from me. Go and live a radical life of obedience to me. It doesn't matter what happens to you in this world. It will not separate you from me. The love of God holds us, perseveres us, strengthens us, and emboldens us in our faith to live godly lives. So I want to just, mothers, press on. Because it's God who sustains you. God is the one who sustains you. It's not your strength. Mothers, stand firm because God's the one who strengthens you. It's not your strength. You're not, you're not put, looking at your well of strength. Yours is empty and dry. God's is full and overflowing. Mothers, continue to love your spouses and your children and all whom you encounter and share the gospel because there's nothing that can separate you from the love of God. You can love them freely. And you can love them even when your children rebel against you for years at a time. Because nothing separates you from the love of Christ. Because you are God's child, God is committed to extravagantly loving you, perfectly sustaining you, and completely persevering you by his unbreakable love in Christ. Know that you're loved. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that, God, your testimony tells us you are for us because you sent your Son to the cross. God, your Scripture tells us that because we look to the cross, we know that because you crushed your Son, you you will provide graciously all that we need, meeting all things for us. God, may we know that. God, may we be shaped by your, by your Scripture, by Your Word. And may we allow the objective reality of Your Word to form our lives, to forge us in the Gospel, that we would stand firm for You, that we would love, that we would radically obey You. Whatever that means, sharing the Gospel here or moving to another country and sharing the Gospel, knowing that no matter what happens, nothing separates us from You. God, we love You and we thank You. God, I pray that you strengthen the believers here today. I pray that anyone who doesn't know you, God, they're drawn to you through your love in Jesus Christ. In your wonderful name, Jesus. Amen.